Right, shall we start? And I'm Atar Hussain, director of the Asia Research Center at the London School of Economics. And the, our speaker today is Professor Rana Mitter from Oxford, who is familiar to the people at LSE because you've been here several times to talk about China. But he's talking on, on a historical issue which is of contemporary interest is China's war with Japan from 1937 to 1945, a bit, a bit of struggle for survival. So I think with this, I let's welcome Professor Mitter. Many thanks to Atta Hussain for that um, very kind welcome. And it's... Uh, delight to uh, see so many of you here in the audience on this lovely sunny evening, which must make me think that the only answer is that austerity is biting so hard that nobody can afford a proper summer holiday anymore. So this is clearly the free alternative. I hope it will prove uh, suitably, uh, suitably entertaining. And it is the case that this evening I would like to talk about a historical subject but one which does have a great deal of contemporary significance. I'm a bit wary, though, I have to say, of trying to project into the future from the present or the past. And I was reminded of this actually just a few months ago when I was in Beijing and speaking to uh, a friend of mine, who's a very distinguished economist. Um, in fact, I think this particular institution has uh, seen him working there in the, in the past, and we were talking about some of the details of, of contemporary China, what we could draw from the past, what might happen in the next five years in that very exciting and, and turbulent society, and finally he got very impatient and said to me, Rana, I don't know why you are asking me all these detailed questions, because I can tell you, in five years from now, China will have collapsed, and i looked a bit shocked at this clearly and uh, he said oh yes yes no it's going to happen and then I thought a bit and said but hang on I remember when I first met you 10 years ago in a pub in Oxford and one of the first things you told me then was that in five years China would collapse and he thought a little bit and scratched his head and said yes Rana I remember that conversation you're right I did say that then but the difference is that this time I am right so I'm hoping that if I make some predictions about directions that China is going in at the end of this talk, primarily about history, and they turn out to be wrong, then in 10 years' time, you will forgive me for the mistakes in predictions by, I hope, at least having learned something from the history. And in talking about that link between the past and the present, I'm first going to pray that the technology works. Yes. And start with an image. And this is an image that may be familiar to those of you who are from China, or at least know China quite well. But in some other sense, it may be something that's familiar for a different reason. I do see actually, and it's very appropriate to the LSE, that we have a very international-looking audience here. Yes, there may even be some people from Huddersfield at the back, I suspect. So I'm wondering how many people here actually are Chinese? Okay, yes, certain, uh, certain number. Um, and how many here are, are British? Okay. And how many people will look very sweaty if I mention the UK border agency? Okay, well, perhaps we won't go down that route. Those who are 
British will know that one of the cultural staples of growing up in this country is an obsession with the Second World War. It's impossible to read children's books or watch television um, or even play games in the school playground without the Second World War, one way or another, coming up in popular culture. Um, There is indeed, as those of you who are British will know, one particular television channel, Channel 5, which operates purely on the basis of vaguely salacious films, football matches, and documentaries about the late but not particularly lamented Adolf Hitler. And on the basis of this, they have created a business case. But what's less well known is that that particular type of television documentary about World War II has also become a big hit in China in recent years. And this is one example of that particular genre. Um, for those who, uh, who don't know, it is basically about the, um, the role of wartime China in the uh, Allied war effort. And you'll see buildings um, here symbolizing the various Allied powers that fought against the Axis. On the left, of course, the Victoria Tower of the Houses of Parliament in London, um, in the uh, middle, the clock in Red Square. Uh, I always like to annoy Americans in the audience by pretending I don't know what that one uh, is, but uh, I'm sure it's familiar to, uh, to most of you. But then on the right, perhaps a more unfamiliar um, uh, monument. This is, in fact, something that was built more than 60 years ago under the title of the Anti-Japanese War Monument. It's now renamed the Liberation Monument, but it still stands where it was built in the middle of the southwestern Chinese city of Chongqing, known in the past under its alternative westernized name of Chongqing. And while the city has been somewhat in the news in the last couple of years because it was the former uh, redoubt of renegade Chinese communist leader Bo Xilai, who, along with his wife, has rather come to grief in recent months. It was much more famous in the mid-20th century as the wartime capital of China, where between 1938 and 1945, the Chinese nationalist government of the time, led by a man whose name was once one of the best known on the planet, now rather faded, Chiang Kai-shek, was at the center of one of the last redoubts of East Asian resistance against the Japanese during World War II. And what I want to do in this lecture, and Dr. Hussain has warned me sternly that I must speak for no more than two and a half hours, is that correct? At least, if I were the Chinese Communist Party, I'd only just be getting started at that, uh, at that point. Well, I may restrict myself to perhaps more like 40 minutes, so we have time for discussion and questions, but I'd like to do two things. The first is to remind those who don't know, or perhaps tell those who don't know for the first time, about the contribution of what I would call the forgotten ally of World War II. China, alongside Britain, the Soviet Union, and the United States, as one of the primary actors in the defeat, ultimately, of global fascism. So that's a historical story, which I hope will be of, of interest. The other part, though, is about the present day. I want to talk about why, counterintuitively perhaps, it seems to me that World War II and this particular experience uh, of uh, resistance is becoming more and not less relevant in the China of today 
and the China that is emerging in the next five to ten years. And in covering those, I hope to show that the past, present, and indeed the future are linked very closely. Before I move on to the details of the story, though, in the interests of historical accuracy, I should point out one thing that is not immediately clear from the cover of this DVD documentary. The anti-Japanese liberation monument in the city of Chongqing is not, in fact, twice as tall as the U.S. Capitol building. Uh, If it were, I think we would have heard about it a little bit more by now. I'm not quite sure what the designer of this DVD was aiming to imply by doing this, but our subject tonight is history and not Freudian psychology, so I think I will leave that aside hastily and move on. In 1937, on the 7th of July, fighting broke out just, and again I'm hoping the technology will work here, yep, just on the outskirts of the city of Beijing, as it now is, Beiping, as it was then known. Not at that time China's capital. In the 1930s, China's capital under the nationalist government of Chiang Kai-shek was down here in Nanjing, but still an important city. Japanese troops stationed outside clashed with Chinese local garrisoned troops. This escalated into all-out war, and before the war was over, eight years later, in August 1945, China would be devastated by the experience. Over the eight years of the war, and those who know something about World War II history will remember that China, of all the Allies, was the one that fought the first and the longest from 1937 rather than 39 or 41. During the course of that time, deaths, the numbers, we don't have exact statistics, but certainly as as reliable statistics as we can put together, put the number of dead between 40 and 20 million. Um, Refugees during that period, ranging from some 80 to 100 million people at some point during the war, and the Tentative, flawed, but real modernization of railways, of roads, of factories, of industrial plant that was taking place in the 1920s and 30s under the then nationalist government were, for the most part, smashed beyond recognition. And these overall are the statistics that are worth remembering as the overall framework for a much more devastating human story that emerged from the war itself. Because it was the culmination of the clash of two growing and ultimately um, conflicting forces. On the one hand, the late 19th and early 20th century saw a growth in the sense of Chinese nationalism, whether it was student demonstrators protesting against the fact that China had become something close to a colonized society attacked by imperialism from Britain, from France, and Japan, or indeed the growing strength of feeling, smaller than in the cities, but still real, in the countryside, that social change and progress needed to come about. That was one force. On the other side, you have the even more strongly articulated sense of Japanese imperialism, Japan as the only non-European, non-Western, non-white power to emerge as a major imperial uh, power during the early 20th century, and which saw its destiny more and more on the mainland of Asia. 
Between 1895 and 1937, large parts of Asia's territory, much of it on Chinese territory, fell or was uh, uh, given away as part of the imperial settlements of the period. So in 1895, Japan got its first colony here in Taiwan. By 1905, uh, parts of, uh, of Manchuria up here in the northeast Korea became a Japanese colony after 1910. Manchuria as a whole in 1931, this area which is about the size of France and Germany combined, invaded in a lightning strike by a garrisoned Japanese army, which took them over almost without resistance. And finally, on the eve of war in 1936-37, more and more Japanese troops stationed in the northern part of China under a variety of agreements but pointing like a very dangerous weapon at the heart of Chinese national government control down here in the center and south. So two forces coming up against each other with a confrontation, if not inevitable, at least highly likely. And finally, when clashes began at a very local level, this was much more like 1914 than it was like 1939 in Europe. In other words, not a first deliberate act as happened on the Polish border in 1939, but a small incident as in Sarajevo and the Archduke Ferdinand quickly blowing out of control. And as a result, from a local clash in July of 1937, by the August and September of that year, China and Japan were essentially at full-scale war. Many serious consequences resulted from that clash. One of them was the motivation of the national government of China at the time under Chiang to ally with its former enemies, the Chinese communists, who I'm sure you will be aware were at daggers drawn with the nationalists at that point, but the two of them uneasily, but to some extent successfully, united together against the Japanese threat. And this sort of newspaper and media propaganda became a staple of that period. Two different uh, visual um, images here. On the top, um, a lurid but uh, I think understandable cartoon in which uh, a Japanese soldier is rather unpleasantly uh, um, uh, 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 caricatured, uh, dripping blood of the knife, as you see, and the figure of China represented by uh, a woman under sexual assault. In some ways more impressive, I think, because more uh, subtle, you have here a woodcut from Feng Zikai, one of China's greatest 20th century artists, influenced by a whole variety of different, um, uh, uh, different sources. On the one hand, traditional Chinese uh, calligraphy and art. On the other hand, a modernist vision that comes in part from German Expressionism, Kieta Kollwitz, and also, actually, for those of you who know British cartoons of the time, the uh, New Zealand cartoonist David Lowe, a very big figure in World War II in Britain and famous for his cartoons of Churchill, uh, even though a New Zealander himself, and under his Chinese name of Lord Dawei, very much a known figure in China at the time. And Feng Zikai chose, rather than the more obvious scene of rubble, destruction, and death after these bombs have hit, to capture this millisecond in the woodcut of the final moments of peace just before the bomb hits this school. So, propaganda was one of the ways in which the Chinese nationalist cause began to become articulated 
as the war took place. But the brave roar of defiance that you see portrayed in these images was in some ways very far from the reality of what was going on. Realistically, the first year or so of the Chinese war effort was engaged with trying to manage retreat. There were important battles, not least a last stand at Shanghai, China's greatest port city, in which Chiang Kai-shek sent at its peak peak, around half a million Chinese troops to fight back the Japanese, or at least make uh, a stand before retreating. Some 187,000 of them were killed in that confrontation between August and November of 1937. Famously, of course, in winter 1937, the rape of Nanking, the massacre and rape of of hundreds, uh, tens, perhaps hundreds of thousands of civilians in the captured nationalist capital, and, of course, the retreat of the wartime capital from Nanjing on the east coast all the way up the Yangtze River, starting here and making their way some 800 miles upriver to Chongqing, Chongqing, here in Sichuan province, as it then was. We've heard a great deal about the famous long march of Mao and his communists a few years earlier from central to northwestern China, but perhaps also the long march, as it were, by river up the Yangtze to Chongqing, which was also a major feat in itself, also ought to be remembered. And so the Chinese nationalist government and millions of refugees who also fled westward into the interior of China, away from the Japanese, began to settle in for what everyone knew would be a long war, but nobody knew how long it might be. Chiang and his government knew, as indeed did Churchill and his government in Britain, that there was little if no prospect of defeating the Japanese on their own, but that it was necessary to wait and resist long enough to bring in powerful allies, whether the United States or perhaps the Soviet Union. And Chongqing provided a sensible base to launch this resistance. For those of you who've been there, you'll know that it sits on the confluence of two great rivers, the Yangtze and the Jialing. Uh, It sits on the top of cliffs, which means that it's very difficult to invade by land. But of course, in World War II, the one area of um, uh, destruction that was highly innovative and highly effective that hadn't existed before was attack from the air. And even though it was hard to invade by land, Chongqing proved a supremely attractive uh, uh, target for the Japanese Air Force. Air raids became a regular part of everyday life in Chongqing, some two years before London would face the same experience in the Blitz, but without the benefit of the RAF to actually uh, uh, fight uh, fight them back. And as a result, scenes like this became a regular sight to people living and working in the wartime capital. Uh, that's just taken, obviously, just after an air raid, someone being stretched out of a, uh, of a building. And here you get, from a slightly higher angle, um, a view of the everyday, um, the everyday uh, scene in many streets in Chongqing. During the winter months, Chongqing did have one other advantage, as it still does today, if it is an advantage, which is that the environmental situation creates a massive fog. And between about September and March, April each year, it became impossible to bomb effectively because there was so much white cloud over the city that the bombers couldn't see to hit. But during the 
spring and the summer, the fog all cleared. Nowadays, because of environmental pollution, that's harder to do, but uh, Chongqing was less developed in the 1930s. And it made an absolutely perfect target for endless streams of Japanese bombers, the most notorious taking place in a series of some 27 continuous raids almost between 3rd and 4th of May 1939, destroying some 12,000 houses, about 5,000 lives, and being particularly symbolically important because for those of you who know Chinese history, the 4th of May 1939 was exactly 20 years after one of the most important nationalist student demonstrations in Chinese history, the May 4th movement of 1919, and the timing of the raid, as the great Chinese writer Lao She observed at the time, was hardly a coincidence. Yet one of the most remarkable things about this temporary wartime government in the interior set up at great haste with only a fraction of the revenue, resources, energy, um, materials, minerals that a wartime economy needed and subject to um, regular raids from the air was that it didn't just survive. It also thought, sought to think in some ways rather surprisingly progressively about what should come next? What kind of China should emerge from the experience of war? And this document, I think, is a rather nice way of uh, crystallizing some of those changes. Now, if there are one or two people in the audience who don't read Chinese, um, you may want a bit of illumination. This what comes... I'm sorry, I think I got the date wrong, actually. It should be 1941. But um, it comes from the uh, Chongqing Food uh, Management Committee air raid uh, damage reports. In other words, an official committee set up to work out what people had lost, what they'd had destroyed in terms of property after the various air raids. And across the top, you have a whole variety of different um, items. Uh, you can see the various things there, including a wooden bed, uh, shoes, um, what else, quilt, and then lines saying um, how many of these have been destroyed, what state they're in, they're almost all completely destroyed, and what the value of them was. In other words, the monetary value of these items um, as, they, uh, uh, as they were calculated by the inspectors in their report. Now, the significance of this was essentially the building, for the first time, of a much bigger and much deeper social contract between the Chinese people and their government. Up to 1937 and up to the war, the Chinese nationalist government had had, frankly, pretty rudimentary, if any, ideas of social welfare as something that a government should expect to provide for its people. But the conditions of war meant that an understanding grew that more and more would be demanded of the people, in, particularly, in particular conscription of soldiers for the huge standing armies that had to be maintained, particularly as large numbers of troops were wiped out in the face of the Japanese attack, but also in terms of a whole variety of other issues. Uh, women's health is one part of, uh, of that. How to deal with wartime orphans was another. And this one document, which is obviously one of uh, a much wider range from the archives in Chongqing, gives some idea of the dilemmas, the difficulties, the questions that bureaucrats in Chongqing had to ask 
about their society and their place in it. On the one hand, much more extensive demands in terms of taxation, labor service, military service, and so forth. On the other hand, the understanding that loyalty to the Chinese government would eventually result in some form of immediate and more long-term reward. We, of course, um, are very familiar with this process in the West since most of the British welfare state emerged as a product of the 1942 beverage report, which put forward uh, uh, detailed ideas of social insurance as the way forward. It led more indirectly, but not that indirectly, to the formation of a national health service after the war, and the statement that the Second World War effectively was the founding point of British social welfareism, or at least the the point of developing it, um, I think is not particularly contentious. What has not, I think, been realised until quite recently is that the emergence of the same arguments earlier than this in China were also part of a global trend. One of my postdoctoral fellows, Dr. De Yun Ma, who's about to take up a lectureship at Exeter University, has written an absolutely fantastic article on a previously unknown subject, which is what the Chinese nationalists thought of the beverage plan. Now, nobody had actually known, I think, that the Chinese nationalists had heard of the beverage plan, let alone looked at it. And yet this article shows that they were actively looking and drawing on international examples to work out what the post-war China was supposed to look like. It also, I think, helps us to revise a long-standing assumption, even amongst people who know Chinese history quite well, that the only people who cared about these issues in wartime China or at all were the communists, who obviously won in the end. And one can't get away from the fact that in the end their vision of social change and revolution was ultimately victorious. But I think it's worth remembering that the story of wartime China is not of an inevitable communist trajectory to victory, but rather of at least three different models of what a modern post-war China would look like. One of which was the communist model, driven on peasant revolution and um, an overturning almost entirely of, 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 of society. The other was this model of the nationalist government and its idea of society that would be authoritarian, but social welfareist and allow a certain amount of political change. Sounds, of course, suspiciously like China today in many ways. And, of course, long forgotten but very real at the time, the prospect of a collaboration, a government which would be under Japanese control, but which would also try and form um, China in the image of a newly forged Japanese empire. And while, for obvious political reasons, that is an option that is not very much discussed in China today, there was a great deal of uh, interest in it at, at the time, at a point when it seemed much more likely that Japan would win rather than that it would lose. So during this period, we also see a great deal of global attention to the Chinese war effort at the time. Again, it's often forgotten but worth remembering that at the time, this became one of the most high-profile wars anywhere on earth. And by progressives and leftists in particular, was seen as the flip side of the Spanish Civil War, which of course was also running at the same time. Now the Spanish Civil War has lived on in popular memory. The Chinese uh, conflict with Japan has, I think it's fair to say, faded much more extensively in the way that people think about this period. Yet at the time, many of the Western progressives, <coughs> excuse me, whom we so- who associate with the Spanish Civil War, pretty much packed 
packed their bags for China as the next destination. Uh, W.H. Auden and Christopher Isherwood, having been in, in Spain, went out to China and wrote a very good book, uh, which I've quoted in my own book, called uh, Journey to a War, which is a sort of semi-diary and photographic record of their time in wartime China. Um, also, of course, the great uh, war photographer Robert Kappa, again, very, very famous for his China- Spanish Civil War uh, pictures, not all of which were staged, I should, should add. Um, also took fantastic photographs in wartime Hankow and other cities, um, and his Chinese photographs, if you don't know them, are one of the great relatively undiscovered treasures of his, um, his archive. Uh, the Dutch filmmaker Joris Ivens, again, uh, well-known, I think, for his involvement in the Spanish Civil War, in this particular case, also shipped out to China. So China and Spain were very much part of this international effort to try and find a way to, um, uh, to, to, to organize and militate against the menace of ultranationalism and fascism. In some senses, Chiang Kai-shek's regime was a rather odd uh, poster boy for this particular aim, since it was clearly a dictatorship, it was not a democracy or a liberal state in any meaningful sense. And yet, of course, its role in fighting the very clearly aggressive force of Japanese imperialism was one of the things that made it, at least for a brief time, the darling of uh, Western uh, liberal views. And as part of that program, as I've said, the formation of a new compact between state and society led to a whole variety of of new schemes. Here we have refugees uh, on a sort of work-welfare scheme uh, um, spinning cloth, Um, And here we have the beginnings of mobilization of society. One of the other things that emerges from the war is the emphasis on mass campaigns and rallies. The nationalists, like the communists, um, had always been keen on these, but they had never been particularly politically effective in the 1920s and 30s. The war did something to try and provide a common cause which enabled people for the first time actually to rally in a more genuine way behind the, uh, uh, behind the wartime cause. And again, I think it's no coincidence that we have here um, a group of women in a torchlight parade, since part of the aim of the nationalist wartime project was to try and mobilize the whole of society. We have some marvelous insider reports from nationalist political activists going down to the countryside and speaking about the difficulty of mobilizing women in the countryside who are, at least in that report, condemned as being far more conservative than men. So in that sense, there is a uh, a kind of um, collective uh, project uh, going on. Also, of course, mobilization in a more literal sense. This is not in Chongqing, which was not on the railway at the time, but the transportation of troops on China's interior railways also became one of the notable phenomena of the early period of the war. And again, one of the things that was most enjoyable about writing the book, in in one sense, was reading these fantastic, almost as live reports sent by a reporter of the time, a man named Du Zhongyuan, who travelled around China's railways, often in very, very difficult circumstances, in the first months of the war, sending back reports from the front line as to how things were going. And there, as you see, you have all members of society, including the very youngest, being brought into the, uh, uh, into the fold. Oops. So let me pause there for a moment, because if what I've been saying, very broadly speaking, that we have a forgotten story of a government, 
under Chiang Kai-shek primarily, but with his communist allies, that was in some sense genuinely resisting the Japanese, that played an important role in the Allied war effort after Pearl Harbor in 1941. That was an important overall part of the strategy of uh, resisting the Axis powers. Why has this faded from popular memory so completely, not just in the West, but also in China itself? And to put it very briefly, the answer is politics. Between 1945, when the war ended, with China somehow staggering to the um, finishing post as one of the victors, and 1950, when China had switched to, uh, had been subjected to the communist revolution and was now, of course, on the opposite side in the, in the Cold War, and also, of course, in those five years, the reversal opposition on Japan in 1945, a defeated enemy for the West, by 1950, a new American ally. That meant that the examination of what went on in China during the war became subject to a whole variety of political constraints both in the West and in China. In, West, in the West, Chiang Kai-shek's reputation had fallen very fast and very hard, in large part through his own flaws, which were considerable, but also because of the irony of the, of the causation of his victory, by a victory if it was, some people would, would query that, I will, uh, would admit, but at least being on the victorious side. By getting by refusing to surrender and by getting China to the, uh, the uh, finishing post in 1945, Chiang had made his country pay a tremendously high price. All of the accusations that were made from the outside about wartime China, that it was corrupt, that it was um, riven by black marketeering, that it swallowed huge amounts of money, all of these things were true. But they were never contextualized, particularly in the West, as being the almost inevitable product of being a very impoverished, very geographically large, and very isolated country that had very few other options. In other words, it was forced, as it were, to devour itself um, at some, I meant that metaphorically, but of course a massive famine in central China in 1942 was one of the more horrifically literal uh, uses of that particular metaphor. All of this as part of the price of staying in the war and staggering till the end. And since the communist allies of the nationalists started quite early on planning for the aftermath, for the civil war, which they knew would eventually come after the uh, defeat of the Japanese, the seeds of conflict between the two Chinese sides were being sown at that point as well. We know, of course, that Mao was ultimately victorious in 1949, and that meant also that a period of darkness emerged on all of the history that I've just told you. Because one of the political constraints that could not be broken in Mao's China was any word of praise whatsoever for the nationalists, for Chiang Kai-shek, and for their contribution during the war. The nationalists were purely the evil enemy who had been defeated in the civil war and had made their way to the island of Taiwan, where, of course, they were still waiting, hoping to start World War III, no doubt. The much more nuanced reality that uh, the defeated nationalists had also played an important part in the war against the Japanese was simply politically unacceptable. And so the Mao regime switched between putting forward a story that the Chinese Communist Party, not the nationalists, had been essentially in the lead during the war, and varying this by actually talking 
um, in very limited terms about any aspects of the war at all. You get the Japanese turning up, for instance, in cultural revolution model operas as the sort of model enemy, but this is often done in a very stylized fashion. It's not really an investigation of the history in any meaningful sense. So this sort of Cold War thaw, in which there was little attention to China and its wartime history in the West, and it was subject to a political straitjacket within China itself, began to change significantly by the 1980s and 1990s for a variety of reasons. But put very briefly, one was the deaths of Mao and Chang back in the 70s. The personal element in the duel between these two great Chinese leaders had essentially ended. Also, the desire for reunification with Taiwan became much stronger. And there was a strong feeling amongst top propagandists that by being a little bit nicer about the nationalist government and Chiang Kai-shek's record, reunification with Taiwan might be more possible. And third, third and not irrelevant, Japan, it was felt, needed to be taught much more of a lesson about the crimes that had been committed by its soldiers during the wartime period. Now that Tokyo had recognized Beijing diplomatically, there was no need to sort of soft foot around them in the international arena, and therefore there was much more emphasis on on stressing Japanese war crimes in China. And the final one was, of course, the ideological vacuum that had been left after the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s, when radical Maoism had lost all of its... um, Uh, convincing power, Deng Xiaoping had moved towards a much more capitalist-driven model of what China would be, and a new, more assertive nationalism became the order of the day in propaganda terms. And as a result, and in ideologically very strange ways, the Nationalist Party and its history began to re-emerge in the context of World War II, with an overall story that while Chiang Kai-shek could not be regarded as uh, a leading figure in the way that Mao was, nonetheless he and his troops had made some contribution to the war effort. That began to appear in museums uh, and uh, uh, television programs and, and books in China itself. But it began, as these things do, to have a very unexpected set of effects. Things that the state and the party could not have predicted and possibly found a little uncomfortable. For instance, this book uh, is one that I bought in uh, Sichuan, in Chengdu, I think, uh, a few years ago. It's called One Man or One Person's War of Resistance Against Japan, and I bought it originally thinking it was a memoir, but it's not a memoir. It's something much more odd and interesting than that. It's written by a man named Fan Jianchuan, who is one of the few um, builders of private, a private museum in China. He's a very rich businessman, and he set up a whole variety of museums of various uh, Chinese historical events, essentially in his own very large backyard um, just outside the city of Chengdu. So amongst other things, he has a museum to the Cultural Revolution, which is a great rarity in China, particularly since, I should add, the museum does not celebrate the Cultural Revolution. But he also has a museum of the wartime period, And the museum is not about the glorious feats of the Chinese communist armies during World War II, but instead about the long-forgotten, long-ignored war fought by the nationalists. And if you think about the location, which is Chengdu back in Sichuan province, sorry, I'm going to whip back to the map for a moment just to show you, down here in the southwest, there's Chongqing, there's Chengdu, not too far away. If one thinks about the location... This is actually a very good example of how a very long repressed, unspoken set of 
popular and social memories finally burst out through the surface into the wider public sphere. Because books like this became the first opportunity to celebrate and remember and commemorate the contribution of the nationalist armies to the defeat of the Japanese. And because Sichuan province out there in the southwest was one of the most important heartlands for conscription, for food supply, for tax provision, all the things that underpin the war effort, it had become doubly, um, uh, doubly distressing for the local population that after 1949, they were not allowed in any public sense to mention, mourn, or commemorate these events in any meaningful way. One can imagine in any other wartime society, particularly on the victorious side, that being forbidden from discussing the events of the war that they had just gone through would have gone down very, very badly. And it is remarkable that in China it took so many decades for this story finally to reemerge. Another example of what emerged, perhaps somewhat unexpectedly, from this loosening up of the historical narrative by officialdom in China is this sort of book. This one's called Going to the Interior, or Going Upriver, uh, Up the Yangtze to Chongqing. And again, it's a genre of book, a type of book that will be very familiar to anyone who grew up in Britain. It's the story of evacuees. Um, if you grow up in Britain, you read children's stories, uh, for instance, about uh, youngsters sent off to the countryside to escape the, uh, the Blitz. And this was also um, an experience that happened to many young and not-so-young Chinese at the time, fleeing their hometowns to make their way into the interior. But until the 1990s, there was no means for them to record and tell these stories. And many of the oral histories in this book, some of which, again, I've I've used, have uh, basically been the stories of people in their 80s, in some cases even 90s, who are finally allowed to talk about their own experiences of fleeing uh, the Japanese and who had been prevented from doing so by the politically unfortunate reality that they did not flee to the communist uh, base of Yan'an in the northwest, but rather to the nationalist capital of Chongqing in the southwest. Here we have an example, again, it's from the front of a book, but of this sort of newly discovered local pride in China. This book shows an unknown soldier, again, a statue that will be very familiar in in type to those who who know about war memorials. But as the title of the book says, it is not a commemoration of the great Chinese people's war against Japan. It is a commemoration of the Sichuan province people's fight against Japan. It is an expression of local provincial pride in the contribution to the fight against the Japanese, which under Mao, and for some time afterwards, could not be discussed or commemorated in any meaningful way. And that brings us round to where we started with this television program, which I'd like to now give just a bit of context to. As I said at the beginning, it is a documentary about World War II and about the place of Chongqing in particular as one of the not three but four great allied wartime capitals. But I think this DVD has a double message. One message is international. It is a way of the historians and the the makers of history documentaries and popular historians telling the world that China wishes to have its contribution to that fight remembered. That far from looking in, China once looked out, was once part of a struggle against uh, forces uh, of uh, 
uh, of the Axis powers and that China's contribution of the 14 plus million killed, of the 80 plus million refugees and of the wartime effort in Asia need to be recalled. But it is also a message from Chongqing to the rest of China. If you look in the middle where it says CQTV, this is a local television production, not a national level one. And it is also, I think, a signal from Chongqing itself that it wishes its history to be remembered by the rest of China, that it is no longer content for that period when, because of the city's nationalist rather than communist past during that period, it was simply forbidden from commemorating its wartime history, forced to sit in the shadow of Mao's revolution far, far away in the northwest of China, based at Yan'an. And to that extent, these two parallel stories, China internationalizing its war history and China, China's cities also discovering their own local history and using them in a sort of internal competition, exist together as part of a much more complex set of arguments, debates, and discussions about Chinese national identity today. So I'll close with two thoughts. The first is that if we are to understand China's changing and often hard to read and hard to, um, uh, uh, to approve, in some cases, international position in terms of East Asia, it is important to remember this history and to understand how much of the unfinished business of 1945, you might say, is still relevant to the shaping of the region. The North Atlantic ended up with the EU, with NATO, with a particular vision of the Cold War for good or evil that remained relatively stable. Asia never had such a settlement, and I think we are still paying some of the price for that today, which is not to assign blame, but rather to try and find cause. On the other hand, on the domestic front, as we go back to that question of my friend in the pub that I mentioned right at the beginning, of where China is going and whether it can hold together. I would look at this aspect of its revisionist understanding of its history as not the only element by any means, but an important one. World War II turns up over and over again in China and in the most surprising places. One of the most surprising to me is, and again, in a wonderful paper by one of my postdocs, Dr. Annie Nier, which is about the way in which the war against Japan has become a staple of multiplayer video gaming in China. One of the big games that you can play if you're part of this sort of video parlor, national, virtual, multi, massively multiplayer uh, video gaming is to take part in video games about the war against Japan, all of which have been approved by the party propaganda department. The one thing that you are not allowed to do with these games, I should add, is to play the Japanese side. Uh, you can only play one of the, uh, the Chinese armies. But within that aspect of youth culture, within the aspect also more obviously of soap operas, of novels, big hit movie of this year that's just gone past in China, many of you will know, was 1942 in Henan, the story of the massive famine that hit China in the middle of the wartime period. In other words, the cultural presence of this long repressed memory now refuses to shut up. I think that's perhaps not entirely surprising. It's been a very long time waiting to emerge, and I think it deserves to be heard and understood. It is not an excuse for anything, but it's certainly an important story that deserves to be understood. And that's one of the reasons why I felt very privileged to be in a position to write a book 
in English, largely for a Western audience, I think, on the importance of China's experience during World War II, in which I think a great deal of what is shaping China now and what will shape China in the years to come may also be found. And I think this is probably a good moment for me to stop there so that we can open up for some questions and discussions. Thank you all very much. I don't want to take you down a different path, but this presumably has quite strong implications for the way we understand the communist victory mm -hmm. um, and the way we understand the conventional view of the nationalists not being engaged with the Chinese people. Is that completely wrong, or does the truth as ever lie somewhere in between? A very good question. Thanks for that. So what does this tell us about the, the ultimate communist victory, since I think no, no news to anyone in this room that they did actually win, and how far is it wrong to think that the nationalists really hadn't engaged with, uh, with their own, own people, which has been traditionally the way in which the communist victory has been explained, at least in part. Um, I think, and again, uh, I hesitate because, of course, um, I've had to try and deal with one aspect of a 500-page book in a 40-minute talk, so I will freely confess there are lots of things, including collaboration with the Japanese and a whole variety of other areas that I couldn't really touch on today. But the communists are very much there in the book as part of that story. And I think the answer is that the communist victory is still, in our understanding, underpinned by lots of the things that we thought it was. Um, the development of a more equitable form of taxation for the peasants. The development of a self-sufficient economy that could deal with the fact that importing and exporting, not only out of China, but from region to region, became more and more difficult in a country whose transportation system was destroyed by the war and where there were checkpoints and uh, local obstacles in a whole variety of, uh, of, of areas. I think also, I should say in passing, that, not exactly in passing, that all of the regimes that existed in China at the time, the nationalists, the communists, the collaborators of the Japanese, also developed quite sophisticated um, surveillance and terror tactics that I think need to be given more attention than they have been um, in terms of understanding levels of social control. Although I should say that was not exclusive to any one regime. They, they were all at it. Where I think we do have to reinterpret what goes on is in giving the nationalist government at the time more credit for understanding the problems that they were facing, even though they are, I think you know, it has to be said that the solutions they found were inadequate to the cause, they were not sufficiently funded, and they weren't sufficiently generated at the grassroots level to mobilize people um, to the level that would have been needed. But they did understand these needs. I mean, there's a special edition uh, of scholarly essays which have just come out that I've co-edited with the European Journal of East Asian Studies, which is several different essays by, uh, by younger scholars looking at different aspects of welfare provision, social welfare provision in wartime nationalist China. And I think it's very revealing about the whole variety of things on everything from women's health to nutrition and health care that were being 
tried out by the government at the time in horrifically different circumstances, you know, where they were being bombed all over the place. You should remember the communists, of course, were not being bombed anything like as regularly as the, as the nationalist government was at that time, and which were in part stymied by the increasing difficulty of finding any sort of revenue and tax base which is, as we all know, one of the necessities for actually paying for uh, a system of, uh, of social change. So I do think we have to rethink that whole set of uh, understandings about where the social change that eventually creates the communist revolution actually comes from. Right, over there. Yeah. Hello? Yes. Um, another aspect which interested me was that um, the Japanese... Uh, apparent passion and hatred for the Chinese cultures that they were trying to absorb, and not just in China, but in the outside, outlying provinces and areas outside China. I mean, almost a holocaust in, in miniature, although thousands were still killed off by the Japanese. Why were they so passionately um, against the Chinese culture that they were trying to absorb? It's a very interesting question, and I understand where it comes from, but I think I'd put it a slightly different way. I don't think the Japanese were against the Chinese culture that they attacked. They basically ended up in, in a situation of what you might call a sort of cognitive dissonance, in which they became absolutely convinced that China needed, as they put it, Japanese assistance, Japanese help, to make China what it ought to be. But the vision of China, the Japanese thinkers who were behind, you know, ultimately the, the imperialist expansion into Asia came up with was one in which essentially China would be politically a vassal state of, uh, uh, of Japan and also one in which the West had almost no uh, role. The other thing was also that it made no attempt to understand Chinese nationalism as a genuinely important political force. It regarded this as some sort of alien intervention in the business of China, uh, which needed to be combated, which is why they were so virulent, both about the communists and about Chiang Kai-shek. But one of the bizarre things that you get from reading the propaganda of the time is that it's always phrased, in this sense it's not at all like the Holocaust, because it's not phrased in terms of destruction or extermination of Chinese culture or the Chinese people at all. Rather, it's in terms of trying to get them to find their true and central cultural essence that only the Japanese can help them come to. Quite how that explains the rape of Nanking, though, is not entirely clear. So it's clear that that dissonance was extremely dissonant. But it does stem from that particular cultural, uh, cultural background. Uh, thank you. Um, I wonder whether you could tell us a little bit more about the collaborationist Kuomintang. Uh, 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 you know, we hear an awful lot about Mao and China, but very little about the uh, collaborationists. I mean, what motivated them? Were, uh, were they uh, fatalistic? Did they feel that you know, you know, Japanese imperialism would go on for the indefinite future? Um, and uh, to what extent did the split in the Kuomintang uh, facilitate you know, the, the expansion of, the, of communist influence? Uh, in the the wartime years. It's an excellent question about the collaborators with Japan. What were their motivations? Why would they do what what they did? And for me, one of the most exciting things, actually, about writing the book was to take the collaborators and treat them seriously, which is something that particularly in China is very rarely done these days. They're treated essentially as hantian, as traitors. You know, this is someone who was beyond almost you know, human comprehension, and we don't need to understand why they did what they did. And the most central 
figure in this, who sometimes been known as the Pierre Laval, I'm sure many of you will know that the French collaboration as Prime Minister during World War II, the Pierre Laval of China, uh, a man called Wang Jingwei, who in some ways was a very unlikely collaborator. He had actually been much more famous than either Mao or Chiang Kai-shek when he was a young man. He was a revolutionary against the imperial dynasty, even threw bombs, uh, Russian anarchist style, at uh, the princes of the imperial house. Um, you know, he was nearly killed on various occasions, and he was the second in command of Sun Yat-sen, the great Chinese revolutionary leader of the early 20th century. So, an unlikely figure to end up with the Japanese. And yet, he did make a fateful flight to Hanoi, which was then in French Indochina, early in the war, about a year and a half in, to negotiate for a collaborationist government with the Japanese, which eventually was set up in Nanjing in 1940. Why did he do it? Well, one of the very interesting justifications for what he did came at the trial, not of him, he actually died probably quite sensibly in 1944, a year before the the war ended, but his wife was put on trial. And she made a very, very strong case in the witness, in in the dock, in which she said that the places that my husband handed over to the collaborationist government, unlike Chongqing, were never bombed again. Nobody was killed in any of the parts of China, Shanghai, Nanjing, um, that he uh, ruled over once he'd agreed uh, the, uh, uh, the collaboration with the Japanese. Also, who knew in 1938 that the Japanese would lose? At that point, it seemed entirely logical that the Japanese would win, the British were not coming to help, the Americans were not coming to help, the Soviets were not coming to help. Someone had to take the responsibility on of dealing with the Japanese and dealing with the millions and millions of refugees and others who were left in limbo at that time. Now, you'd be unsurprised to hear that she was convicted, although she was given quite a light sentence, actually, but at the end of her testimony in the Shanghai courtroom, the audience clapped. They applauded her afterwards, showing that there were quite a few people out there who thought that this narrative of events was something that they found convincing. It's worth remembering, just to add two last short points on the collaborators, that The parallel with Vichy France doesn't quite work for two reasons. One is that while the Japanese presence in China during the war was horrific and savage in many ways, the rape of Nanking is the obvious example, it wasn't the Holocaust. There was no exterminationist, genocidal aim to destroy the Chinese people. Now, that was not part of the the agenda. And therefore, compromise was possible in a way that meant something rather different from the the French and Vichy experience of essentially compromising with genocide. The other thing was that Wang Jingwei, unlike Laval and Pétain, who saw themselves setting up a new state that would throw off the flaws of the old Third Republic in France, argued that they were actually restoring the old nationalist government. Chiang Kai-shek had given up the mandate by allying with the communists and essentially with, with Moscow as they saw it and that by setting up a government in tandem with the Japanese in Nanjing, Wang Jingwei was not usurping power, he was bringing it back to where it rightfully belonged in very difficult circumstances. You may argue that he was wrong to do so, but in terms of his actions at the time, there is a logical thread that runs, uh, runs through them. Thank you. Uh, Taking up from that previous point and the case you make in the book very powerfully about social welfare and mobilization as promoting a sense of national identity, what about the corollary of that? If that's happening in all three zones, communist, collaborationist and nationalist, 
Uh, shouldn't identity then move as much in favour of each of those zones as anywhere at all? Um, not one particular case. But above all, if it fails, isn't the corollary the opposite? Couldn't one assume that the sheer fragmentation, the descent into terror, the failure of the welfare schemes, actually, if anything, demobilised Chinese people. Actually, the war didn't advance popular national feeling at all. And there's this tendency to think war advances national feeling. I wonder whether you might question that. Yep, I mean, th- thank you, John. Excellent question, and uh, deserves uh, um, a uh, it deserves a long answer, which I won't give now, but I'll give a shorter one. The first thing is, I think it is entirely right to view the political, the, the what do you call it, the politics of social welfare in wartime China as a competition between different models, and to see a certain amount of flexibility, and you can uh, sorry. Uh, fluidity between them. And the literal demonstration of this is one of these wonderful documents that I think is in, in the book from nationalist intelligence people saying, we've got all this prob- problem with all these refugees. They keep saying that these various Japanese agents are coming and telling them that if they come back to the Japanese controlled areas, then life will be much better. And the Japanese agents are also offering them free tickets for the boats to come back and food and instructions and all these things. And we're going to have to do a lot more propaganda to stop them going. So clearly, although it wouldn't be politically expedient to say so, there was a great deal of attractiveness in that proposition to people who didn't at that stage have a very strongly developed sense of national identity and who were perfectly susceptible to an essentially economistic argument that living in some slummy refugee camp um, to wait out a war which nobody knew how long it was going to last and if they would win or not wasn't much of an option compared to basically going home and being sorted out by the, the new regime that arrived there. But the other half of the equation about failure is also very important. I think one perfectly plausible way of looking at the end point of this dynamic in wartime China is that essentially the nationalists were caught in what in another piece I've called a transnational trap in which they found themselves responding to a lot of international as well as domestic pressures to create this sort of social welfare state only to find that financially and socially it wasn't possible. And by raising the expectations in that way, I think they contributed to what the first question was asking about, which was creating even more of a set of circumstances where the communist vision would eventually become convincing. I mean, if you're offering people basically the NHS and and beverage, that's one thing. But if you're talking about a state that talks very big, but ultimately looks like it's been shot to pieces, which is really where China was by 1945, then actually the promise of some sort of jam that may be emerging in the short term looks much less attractive than the prospect of an all-out social revolution, which is eventually, of course, as we know, what, uh, what happened. So you know, I do think we, inevitably we get to the same end point of, of, of the communist revolution. It's just a question of how we find the dynamic that takes us, uh, takes us there. I'm very ignorant about uh, Chinese politics and about what happened in this war, but it's my impression that uh, Madame Chiang Kai-shek and Chiang Kai-shek themselves both talked a good talk to the Americans about what was going on in China uh, in order to get them on the side. Uh, Whether they were actually delivering what they were saying they were doing may be another matter. 
Uh, is that your impression that basically they were talking a good talk, they were doing expediently what they had to do wherever they had to do it, but they weren't actually in any way suffering from a mindset change in, in this social contract that you talked about? Uh, in the same way, I might say, that uh, many Americans formed the view that giving weapons to the Chinese was not actually going to help the war because the uh, Chinese that they gave them to were not going to use them against the Japanese, but would store them up for a future civil war. Um, no, thanks for a very good question. I mean, was this all bluster and talk on the nationalist side, particularly Chang and Madame Chiang Kai-shek, but without actually much substance underneath? Which remember actually that by the end of the war, Chiang Kai-shek's nickname amongst certain Americans was Cash My Check, on the grounds that he always seemed to be asking for, uh, for money, not necessarily with any end result. But I'd say, in simple answer to your question, I would say that where historians are now, and I think this is including historians in the mainland of China as well as in the, in the West, is very much questioning almost every aspect of the, the portrait that you've drawn, which is entirely you know, accurate from the scholarship of, say, 30, 40, 40 years ago. I think what people tend to argue now is the following. First of all, the very real contributions that China made to the, first of all, fighting on its own for four and a half years before the Allies even came along, and then after that, were always, always measured up in an incredibly unrealistic way, as if China were the British Empire or the United States or indeed the, the Soviet Union. China was very poor. China was technologically underpowered in a big way. China was split between different political factions. And therefore, the expectation that it could act as, you know, a sort of premier league power at a time when it essentially had, you know, third-tier power capabilities was always a very dubious one. Essentially, the problems came at a variety of levels, which I think I outline in, in more detail in the, in, 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 in the book. One is personalities. Famously, Chang's chief of staff, a man nicknamed Vinegar Joe Stilwell, became, you know, basically he and Chang were an absolutely toxic combination, uh, largely because Chang was more concerned with, for obvious reasons, with a strategy that would defend China, whereas Stilwell was rather given to sort of launching out into Burma and various other places that may or may not have been sensible places to actually try and attack. But there is a wider sense that, in fact, China inevitably sat quite low in the queue in terms of priorities. Europe was going to be liberated first, the Pacific was going to be taken next, and China was basically lined up after that. If you are George C. Marshall, the chief of, uh, star, uh, chief of the army of the, the U.S. Army, or if you're Lord Mountbatten, or if you're any of these people, you can quite see that overall this is a necessary thing. Even rich allies have limited resources, and you can only do a certain number of things at once. And clearly bringing the Soviet Union in was important too. But it's a long leap from that to basically saying, therefore, the Chinese should, you know, a country of 600 million people which have been fighting longer than anyone else, should sacrifice their own interests in favor of the allied effort overall. And for that reason, essentially, the impression was created not entirely without foundation, but without much context, that China was an unworthy ally, that what it was doing wasn't sufficient, that it wasn't looking to fight, that it wasn't interested in, in, uh, in resisting the Japanese properly, all of which seems to me a very odd thing to say about a country that at its peak was keeping you know, the best part of three-quarters of a million Japanese troops bogged down 
who otherwise could have been redeployed at various points to the, uh, to the Pacific. So I think when you read the story through Chinese sources rather than through the eyes of General Stilwell or Marshall or other American observers, it doesn't change 180 degrees. I think that's not fair to say. But you do get a significant level of difference when you see it through the eyes of, uh, of the Chinese. Do you have any questions for women at all? We seem to have a very male audience speaking tonight. Okay. Hi. Um, my understanding is there's a significant difference in the way the um, Japanese have acknowledged what they did during the Second World War compared to Germany. Mm. Um, and that might be rather crude, but it mm -hmm. appears to be so um, seen by some people. Uh, does the Second World War still have a... The, the role of the Japanese, does it have a function internally in the Chinese Communist Party and therefore my question is, would it make any difference if Japan ever got round to an acknowledgement of what they did? Or would they, the Chinese Communist Party then think, oh my goodness, here's another problem? The answer, it's a very good question. I mean, how much is the Chinese current political position tied to um, whether or not there would actually ever be a Japanese apology for war, for war crimes? Japanese prime ministers have apologized many times for their crimes in China. This is one of the things you don't get when you go to China because it's never acknowledged. Um, so the answer to your question is no, it doesn't make any difference because it's happened many, many times already. The situation is much more complex than either side, either the people who are kind of weird ultra-Japanese uh, ultra-nationalists or kind of die-hard communist propagandists would have you believe. Japan has not reached the kind of reckoning with its wartime past that Germany did, and it needs to do that. There's no doubt about it. There is a very shrill, very unpleasant ultra-nationalist right wing to this day in Japan that argues that the Asia-Pacific War, as it calls it, was not just not a mistake, but actually a glorious war of liberation against Asia. And uh, I have yet to meet any Chinese people who would agree with that, uh, but I don't think those sorts of Japanese talk to Chinese people very much. However, it is a long and unhelpful leap from that to the claim that you sometimes hear in China that no Japanese ever have apologized, in, including in official positions, have apologized for the war. It is very little acknowledged, and I think it should be acknowledged, that one of the most important forces in revealing the rape of Nanking to the world back in the 70s was not the Chinese, who didn't talk about it at all at that point, certainly wasn't the West, it was the Japanese left, and in particular the journalist Honda Katsuichi, who received a lot of death threats from right-wing Japanese at the time, who went to China, did the interviews, published them in the Asahi Shimbun, and forced Japan's civil society to start to come to terms with that. You also have a great deal of very lively discussion about the issue of textbooks in Japanese schools, which we hear about a great deal. I think Japanese textbooks could do more than they do, quite a bit more, to talk about World War II. But it is simply not true, as some people say, that they that the general textbooks used in Japanese schools just don't mention the war at all or mention it very minimally. There are a small number of slightly nutty textbooks that are used in the minute number of schools in Japan, most of them private, that do push that. The vast majority of textbooks in Japanese schools um, have you know, significant sections on World War II and on Japanese responsibility. As I say, I think they could do more, as the Germans do, but the idea that it's not there is, is simply, uh, simply misleading. As with most of these things... 
it's not politically helpful to those on either extreme to acknowledge the nuance. And I think people like the present Prime Minister, Mr Abe, don't help because uh, I think he has taken a very strongly and unpleasantly nationalist uh, uh, position in terms of uh, his own personal politics. But I don't think that speaks for the entirety of the Japanese public sphere by, by any means. Go ahead. Hello, uh, thank you for the talk. I've got actually two questions I would mm-hmm. hope for you to answer. Uh, first of all, actually talking about in terms of the war fighting technique, we can clearly see, I think one of the reasons why the Chang is unfortunately condemned to criticisms is because his failure to lead China in a war. Uh, because in your book, you have written about that the early victory of the nationalist forces was in early 78, where the forces were less trained, was encrypted. Right. And in 1944, there was this massive defeat mm-hmm. where the national forces were actually better trained, better encrypted. And I believe that's for, for a wartime military leader. That's why condemning, and I don't believe so. And, any sort of like contextual analysis could be able to let John to get away with it, to, 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 to lose badly while he's got better force at hand. And the other issue, like you just brought up about like the Japanese perception of the war, which mm-hmm. actually quite reminds me of a conversation with um, a friend of mine who recently been to Japan, and he said like, when well, he was walking to a bookshop in Tokyo, and basically, uh, he asked about if there's a book about the rip of Nanking, and mm. the shop owner said, well, yes, they are, so do you want them to lift him to a bookshelf? Um, and he said, you've got the left-wing book, which is acknowledged as a war crime, and you've got the right-wing book, which is, like, denial. I mean, it's mm. almost unbelievable, uh, while well, making, like, kind of, like, inappropriate analogy. You'll be, be, like, walking to a bookshelf in Berlin, and you ask about if there's a book on Holocaust, and the bookshop owner says, well, there are books that acknowledge Holocaust, and you've got the Holocaust denial book on the right bit. So do, do you believe that this has something to do not just about politics, but about like the Japanese mindset. Sorry, about the Japanese what? Mindset. M- mindset. Mindset. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, to take your second question first, um, no, I don't think there is such a thing as a Japanese mindset. Uh, I mean, Japan is a country which has a much wider and much broader civil society than China because it's a liberal democracy. It has all sorts of flaws, including its understanding of historical past. But, you know, it's not quite the same, but you will have heard in the last few months that it's only now that the British colonial authorities have come to terms with various things that happened during the Mau Mau campaign in Kenya in the 1950s when horrific acts were committed by both sides. And I don't think anyone would criticise, you know, the overall depth of, you know, Britain's public sphere simply on those grounds. The fact, the important thing is not just... um, uh, what's hidden and what's, what's, what's put in the public sphere, but what capacity there is to discuss these things. And the reality is that even now, in mainland China, it is not possible to have a full and meaningful discussion of these questions in a way that it is more possible to do in Japan. I agree that the view has not reached the level that it has in Germany, which has had a different sort of reconciliation with its past. But I think, frankly, you know, talking about mindsets and so forth isn't the most 
flexible way of thinking about this because it suggests some kind of static view of culture that is never the case. I mean, Japan is, you know, one of the culturally most productive and interesting places in East Asia. You know, if you think about which countries have soft power in Asia, it's not China, it's Japan and South Korea. And both of those, I think, come from the fact that there is an awful lot of interesting and creative thought bubbling up from under the surface, which includes thinking about history. Japanese historians of the war are still much better sourced and much more creative and, I have to say, for the most part, still much more forward-thinking in terms of their discussion of these topics than the majority, although by no means all, of those working on similar questions in, uh, in China, although I know a great many Chinese scholars who have written wonderful and interesting work, much of which has not been permitted to be published because of censorship. So I think in those circumstances, it's hard to have an honest debate between the two sides in a way that you can do between Germany and France. In just brief answer to your first question, I think you're talking about Operation Ichigo in 1944, about which there's a long chapter in the book, so I hope you'll read it. I think there's no doubt that it was a disaster in terms of the nationalist war effort. It was also a disaster for the Japanese. I mean, if you could say that both sides lost, then both of them lost. The only people who won for Operation Ichigo were the communists. But my point will be once again that by 1944, you're dealing with a punch-drunk state that is essentially devouring itself to stay in the war because all of its best troops had been killed very early on from 1937-38 when nobody was coming to help. And that context, I think, does do something to try and explain why, despite all the odds, when it would have been more logical for China to surrender much earlier on in the war, it continued to fight when it had the option of collapsing and, uh, and didn't do so. And I think more understanding has to be given to that decision, since it was by no means an automatic or a, or a natural one. Oh, okay, go ahead. Hello, yes. Hi, thank you for your talk. You have talked about an unfinished business in Asia. And uh, how will the business in Asia then finish if uh, it seems that uh, you claim history could teach us something and if uh, nationalism both in China and Japan remains as strong as ever? Thank you. Yeah. Um, I don't mean lessons in the sense that if you read more history we should do this, that or the other. I don't think history is that kind of force. I think I meant lessons in the sense of explanatory ones, to explain why things happen in a particular way. And what I meant by that in particular was that because of the total defeat of Nazi Germany and because essentially of, you know, let's put it plainly, the American reconstruction through martial aid and political control of post-war Western Europe, you get the emergence of a multilateral system through NATO in defense, through the European Union in, in politics and finance and, and, and social change that essentially created a framework that created a stable Europe. The events of the last you know, couple of years have suggested that that may be cracking in a whole variety of ways, or it may not, but for it to have lasted as long as it did is, is something of, a, of, of an achievement. No such settlement ever emerged after 1945 in Asia because the, the Chinese regime that had won the war, the nationalists, was quickly ousted for a communist regime that wasn't recognized by the other great power in the region, the United States. And if you basically have two very big powers that don't talk to each other for 30 years, it creates a profound instability, which the results of which we all, all know. As a result, a whole variety of things, including the current, very current territorial claims on islands in the East China Sea, South China Sea, all of these sorts of things, are in a sense a product of the inability to create that sense of a stable Asian 
um, framework in the post-1945 period. That's why we keep hearing about a whole variety of alphabet soups in the present day, ASEAN plus three, Trans-Pacific Partnership, APEC, you know, all of these things are supposed to find some way to actually create a framework that should have been put on the ground 60, 70 years ago. And while I think, you know, I will say frankly that China is, I think, storing itself problems in the future if it doesn't learn to adapt itself more to that circumstance, I could also lay the blame, I think, on the international community for not incorporating China more firmly into the post-war order in a way that might, or might not, but it might have helped to create that framework much earlier on in the process. 70 years after 1945, nearly, is quite late in the day to start building these sorts of, uh, of frameworks. Okay, over there. Got it. No, I think the gentleman at the back. Thank you for your talk. Um, let me start with a minor point uh, in one of your slides. Um, oh. In one of the slides oh. yeah, with children bearing the pickles, you said uh, it was a, a war mobilization. Mm. But in the script, it says uh, actually the uh, country building market supplying brigade, that's the first sentence. Mm-hmm. The second part is um, learning to be expert farmers. So I think that makes sense because mm-hmm. nobody will put children bearing pickles mm. uh, at harm's way, in harm's way. Mm. So that's my main point. So then my main point is uh, you kept uh, referring to uh, oh. the history, the war history, uh, has been forgotten. Yes. So uh, I don't think that can be true for any country. As long as you, um, you have your culture, you have your language, you will never forget you know, atrocities uh, committed by uh, whoever. Uh, no. So for no, no country, that can be, your, your assertion can be true. I think that's, that's a bit of... Uh, 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 and, uh, a bit of insult to the Chinese people. Mm-hmm. So my second question, what's your main uh, game in writing a book? Uh, what's the special value of, uh, you try to achieve that others, I guess there must be a load, you know, oceans of work covering this uh, historical period. So what special goal do you have, or have you achieved it? Okay, so some interesting points there. The first one, I think you misunderstand the nature of mobilization. Mobilization is not about making people fight. It is about bringing together different elements of society to make them part of a total effort. Nobody would remotely suggest that 10-year-old children are going to be sent into the front line, nor would that be uh, something that anyone would realistically say. But to bring them into the wider mobilization of society and the militarization of society more general, generally is something you see in mid-20th century China and into the, um, the period that follows. And it's one of the things that links the nationalist period to the communist period. So that's what mobilization means. I think that's where your misunderstanding lies. The second point um, about having forgotten. First of all, I was making it very clear, and I will say again, that I think the China war has been forgotten very largely by the West. If you... Um, 
If you ask, you know, even quite well-educated Western people about what uh, they know about China's role in World War II, you'll either get a blank stare or a very limited number of uh, pieces of information. So part of the answer to your third question about what's the point is that I think it's very important to write a book for an audience that explains the detail of this war for those, uh, those wider readers. It is not very easy to go to the shelf and find a book if you're a reader in a Western context that will tell you about the, uh, the war. But the second part of your first point about forgetting, I'm afraid, which way, where are you, you're from China, obviously. Where are you from in China? Yeah, from Dongbei. Okay, well, I wrote my first book about Wei Manchukuo, and I have to say, sorry, the, the Manchukuo puppet state, and I have to say a lot of people in China don't remember anything about the formation of that period. Also, in Chongqing, I think many, many people were forced to forget about atrocities, including the terror bombings between 1938 and 1943. And I think pointing out that the Chinese state was as responsible in the post-war period for making people forget is as important as the responsibility that must be placed on the Japanese for carrying out the raids in the first place. This is not an exercise in claiming that one side has it all right and the other one has it all wrong. It's in uncovering the historical reality of the time. So I hope even for some Chinese people who know this story better, they will find things that will surprise them as well. Yeah, okay. Uh, thank you very much for your talk. My name is Feng Xu. I'm a current student at LC uh, from Department of Management. My question is, uh, uh, first of all, among the Chinese uh, political elites, there's a kind of uh, mixed attitude towards Japan. Some people, like maybe, they are quite optimistic and quite positive about like, Japanese modernization, Japanese uh, economic miracle. Uh, some are still nationalistic. But my question is, uh, from a Japanese perspective, do the same kind of, uh, like, attitude toward the history among the Japanese, like for example, among the Democratic Party of Japan and the Liberal Democratic Party of Japan, mm. do, you, do you have some uh, division, I mean, um, the, uh, opinion division between the, the, the two parties in terms of uh, their China approach? So the first thing. The second thing is, uh, uh, so what transferred Japan from uh, such kind of brutal imperial power during the Second World War to such a peaceful and uh, economic superpower in the like, late uh, 20th century. So what makes the Japan transfer so dramatically? Thank you. Well, yes, it's a very interesting question. What makes Ch Japan change so dramatically from an aggressive imperialist power in the first half of the century to you know, a peaceful economic superpower in the second half? And you can answer that the same thing could be true of Germany, of course, which was very much in a similar situation. I think that actually gets to the issue about mindsets. Mindsets and culture are changeable. They are not set in any uh, meaningful sense. The flippant and obvious answer in both cases is very large amounts of American money. I mean, that's clearly one of the, uh, the things that helps to, uh, to convert things. And, of course, interestingly, one of the things that China didn't get after the war, which makes explain at least some of what happens there. But broadly speaking also... It is a product, I think, of a much greater global set of understandings after 1945 that the circumstances that not once but twice had led to massive global and international conflicts could not be allowed to be repeated. And in that context, the generation of politicians in Japan, people like Yoshida Shigeru and others, who um, obviously you know, had had careers before 1945, 
began to adapt to what was clearly a much more powerful mode of, uh, of governance that was emerging after 1945. I would say the, also the other circumstance that we have to remember is that this was the era of the Cold War. It became increasingly important for the superpowers to try and create blocks of control which they would be able essentially to dominate. And in that context, the unwillingness of the Americans to allow Japan to rearm forced Japan of necessity to create a different model for itself which was more about the economy and ultimately about culture as well rather than about militarism. So it was a combination, I think, of pressure and genuine change. Yeah, I've just been reminded there is an upstairs, so go ahead. And this will be the last question. Okay. Uh, hi, so in your book, A Very Short Introduction to Modern China, and briefly in this lecture, you sort of touched on a parallel between the nationalist China of the 1930s and 40s and the communist China of today, and the, both of their visions for China. So I was wondering if you could elaborate on the extent of that parallel, because it's quite interesting and relevant. Thank you for that question. The parallels between nationalist China back in the 1930s and communist China today. Well, the main difference between the two, I should say, is that um, Japan is not about to invade China today, despite what certain Beijing taxi drivers might tell you as they drive you from the, uh, the airport, and that's quite an important difference. You're right. I mean, thanks. Uh, someone, somebody's bought a copy of the book over there. I'm glad to, glad to see that. Um, at the end of a shorter book, I read just talking about modern China more generally, I, I visualized two ghosts wandering around China today, one of them being the ghost of Chairman Mao, who would have his head in his hands and say, no, no, that's terrible, that's not what I meant at all, this is absolutely appalling. And then the other one being the ghost of Chiang Kai-shek, who would nod and say, yeah, I meant something pretty much like that, that's about right. Um, and I think it does get to the reality that at some level, the kind of society that China is today an authoritarian society, but one that has a limited but real public sphere. I mean, the social media is one very good example of that. A country that wants to be sovereign and have its own boundaries secured, but also deal with international society and trade with it in a, in a meaningful way. And which has a model which is not democratic um, and probably doesn't show any signs of democratizing in a full sense very soon, although I think it will come, but at the same time is tied to a model of economic growth and social welfareism that the nationalists would have found very familiar. In these senses, it is similar. I think we also have to remember there are differences. You know, it's, it's an interesting, I hope, interesting way of thinking about the parallels. It doesn't mean that the two are the same. Oh, I should mention massive corruption as well. That's another uh, similarity between the, the two, it's fair to, uh, fair to say, and growing social inequality. But the Chinese Communist Party still, at some base, emerges from social revolution in a very total sense. The nationalists also regarded themselves, they still do technically, as a revolutionary party, but they never had the intention of that kind of very heavily class-based social revolution that gave them some sort of legitimacy in the end. I think the embers of that revolution are becoming harder and harder to find, but they're not completely absent. And so in terms of looking for difference, I would look at that genealogy of the state as well, but you know it is important to uh, uh, to bear in mind the differences as well as the uh, as, as well as the similarities on that uh, on that front. But as I said, we have to talk about that book or indeed um, the uh, the current book um, afterwards, where I'll be signing signing copies. So do come and have a further chat if you'd like. Well, thank you very much. And the book is on sale outside, so I would encourage you to buy the book and read it.
And let's thank Professor Rana Mitra for a